just entered that competition again to win £3,000 of BP Me rewards points. So did I. But you didn't buy the fuel. I did. Didn't have to. It's with any purchase. And I purchased Jelly Babies. Oh, did you get me some? I did. Not. Win £3,000 worth of points every day until the 28th of February to spend on anything from a year's free fuel to your favourite BP treats. Just scan your BP Me rewards card each time you shop. BP, here for all of life's journeys. Terms and conditions apply. For full conditions, see bpmerewards.co.uk. Hi there, and welcome back to the Northern Agenda podcast, bringing you closer to the big politics stories happening from Blackpool to Barnsley and from Redcar to Runcorn. I'm Rob Parsons, Northern Agenda editor for Reach, the people behind the Liverpool Echo and Newcastle Chronicle. My main job is writing the daily Northern Agenda newsletter about politics in our great region. We've got two great guests on this week's podcast as efforts continue to find clean ways to produce energy and create jobs into the bargain. Sam Richards from the pro-groove campaign group Britain Remade tells us how in one region of the north there's overwhelming support for onshore wind turbines. And staying in the northeast, I've been speaking to the deputy mayor of Middlesbrough, Mika Smiles, about how the spiralling cost of looking after vulnerable children is putting councils like hers at risk of effectively going bust. But as I record this on Thursday afternoon, the big story for the North's political leaders is the unveiling of the long-awaited levelling up fund round two, doling out more than £2 billion for much-needed regeneration projects with the aim, so we're told, of spreading opportunity outside London and the South East. And there's certainly been some big Northern winners. The Eden Project, a massive eco-development on the Lancashire coast, is getting 50 million, and there's 40 million going to a university project in Blackpool. So it's probably not a coincidence that Rishi Sunak and Michael Gove were there today talking about their commitment to left-behind parts of the country. But the story is actually a bit more complex than that. If you look at the per head breakdown for regions, Yorkshire's is the lowest of any outside London at just £22 a head. And for a lot of these places, such as Barnsley, for example, which is getting £10 million for an outdoor activity park and youth centre, the cash they're getting doesn't come close to making up for the hundreds of million pounds they've lost during austerity. And there are plenty of local councils and MPs who've submitted bids, taking a great deal of time and expense in the process, who've been left with nothing to show for it. So I think we're going to hear plenty more on this story in the weeks to come. There was a new national record set on December the 30th last year with nearly 21 gigawatts of power coming from offshore and onshore wind turbines. That's the most that's ever been produced in one day by wind generation. So it's clear that when Boris Johnson described wind turbines back in 2013 as not being able to pull the skin off a rice pudding, he got it wrong. But the question of where and how many wind turbines are built uh, on our green and pleasant land has generated a lot of debate in recent weeks. Under pressure from its own Tory MPs who were threatening to rebel, Michael Gove's levelling up department said last month that the rule requiring new turbines to be built on pre-designated land will be rewritten. And now a new poll reveals that people living in the North East are overwhelmingly supportive of more clean energy schemes in their communities, but they feel the region is being shortchanged on its investment for Westminster. 
Commissioned by pro-growth campaign group Britain Remade, the poll shows 85% of local people in the northeast support the building of onshore wind in their community and support for lifting the government's effective ban on onshore wind farms is higher in the northeast than any other region. So um, we've got Sam Richards, the founder of Britain Remade, uh, to talk to us about the findings. Sam, welcome to the podcast. Hi there, thanks for having me. So can you just give us, I've, I've, I've sort of summed up some of the headline figures from, from the survey. Can you just tell us a bit more about what you what you uncovered? Yeah, it, look, it was really interesting polling. And what it showed was there was support for unlocking onshore wind right across the country. But in fact, the northeast was the region that was most supportive of building onshore wind with, as you said, over 85% of people supportive of onshore wind being built in the area and only 8% opposed. There were similarly high levels of support for other sources of clean technology with over 90% support for new solar and over 90% support for new offshore wind as well. And this shouldn't be surprising. The reason for this is because people get that these are now the cheapest sources of power. So not only will it help us tackle climate change, but if we want to cut our bills, if we want to make uh, businesses more competitive and bring down industrial energy costs, then we need to roll out more renewable energy. Unfortunately, at the moment, the government has got an effective ban on onshore wind in England. This needs to be lifted as soon as possible. But and at the same time, it takes far too long to build other sources of energy as well. So we need to not just unlock onshore wind in England, but cut the time it takes to build other sources of renewable power as well. So your survey, from what I can see, seemed to suggest there's more enthusiasm for clean energy in the northeast than other regions. I mean, is, is, is that the case? And why, why do you suppose that might be? That is the case. Um, And as I say, support was high across the country for unlocking onshore wind, but it was particularly high in the northeast, which had the the highest level of support of any part of the country. And I think it comes back to the proud industrial heritage that this part of the world has. Right. I think it comes back to its, you know, if you uh, you go around the world and you see the evidence of the North Sea's industrial heritage, the, the steel that holds up the Sydney Harbour Bridge was built on Teesside. Uh, and so because of this, this industrial history, uh, people in the Northeast um, get the industrial opportunity from the next industrial revolution, uh, and that is in new clean power and new sources of clean energy. So what message should the government take from what you've uncovered? Is the the central point that they're making it too difficult for companies who want to build wind turbines and other green infrastructure? Is that the main message you want to get across? That's absolutely right. And not only uh, are they making it too difficult, but that by making it too difficult, they're making themselves less popular. That popular thing to do would be to unlock these new sources of, of clean power like onshore wind, and also to speed up the deployment of other sources of power. It takes 13 years in total from development to deployment to get a new offshore wind farm up and running, despite the fact that actually building the thing takes two to three years. There are years spent in bureaucratic planning processes and consenting, uh, which are artificially keeping our bills high, because if we got those turbines up and running, we could cut our bills. 
uh, are making us more reliant on imported gas from dubious uh, regimes and are holding back uh, the economies of regions like the Northeast that stand to gain from the new clean energy transition. Now, I guess, I mean, as I mentioned earlier, there is a, a debate about this this agenda. And is it is it possible to go too far with sort of cutting red tape and you know, removing restrictions on planning? Uh, because obviously these regulations, they do exist for a reason. They were created mm. for, for a particular purpose. Is, is there a risk of a bit of a free-for-all that might be damaging to sort of the countryside if, if, if too many restrictions are taken away? I mean, it's absolutely vital that we protect our natural world as well. But one thing to bear in mind is that England, very sadly, is one of the most nature-depleted countries on the planet. English nature has been in decline for decades, and all of the key indicators on biodiversity uh, demonstrate that. The number of farmland birds in decline, the number of insect life that are in decline. So the, the decline of British nature has happened under the current planning system. So we've got currently a planning system, a system of environmental assessments that isn't protecting nature, but at the same time is stopping us building more environmentally friendly sources of energy like onshore wind, like offshore wind, like more solar. So we think it must be possible to design a new system of environmental impact assessment, a new planning regime that is able to speed it, speed things up, but also, as things are being built, uses some of the proceeds from the cheapest sources of power to fund nature restoration. So we can build a new system that is both better for nature and creates jobs and cuts our bills and at the same time tackles climate change. That's really interesting. Now, just as a final question on a uh, sort of related Subject, you'll be aware, I'm sure you've seen it, that there was a big blow for clean energy in the Northeast this week. The, the firm behind the British Vault uh, electric vehicle battery gigafactory uh, went into administration and you know, there's doubts now about whether that scheme will happen. I'm interested in your view on that as a sort of campaign group that's that's pro-growth. I mean, who who's to blame for that big scheme not happening and is, is there any prospect or, or likelihood do you think of salvaging something from it that can bring the jobs that the northeast needs sort of from a, a battery gigafactory i don't really know enough about the specifics of the of the british vault case um, unfortunately um it's clearly the case uh not least with the expertise that that, that you have at the the nissan factory um that there are real opportunities in battery manufacturing in electric vehicles and in new clean industries um and i think as i say one of the one of the main barriers to this is our is our planning system uh that is stopping us building those new sources of, of energy building the new infrastructure um, and building the the new clean industries if we can if we can remove some of those barriers then we can unlock billions in private sector investment that will create exactly the kind of jobs that you know we've been hoping to see from the from the british vault factory sam richards from britain remade thank you so much thank you
Now, earlier this month on the Northern Agenda podcast, we heard one of the region's longest serving council leaders, Barnsley's Stephen Houghton, describe the way our town halls are funded as broken, those in the north suffering as a result of an unfair system. And there's a particularly stark example of the situation facing our local leaders in the town of Middlesbrough, one of the most deprived places in the country. Its ability to turn things round and invest in its economy is being hampered by the spiralling costs to the taxpayer of looking after its vulnerable children. Uh, And it's not a Labour politician making this claim. These are the words of Mika Smiles, the Conservative Deputy Mayor of Middlesbrough and the Council's Executive Member for Children's Services, writing recently on the Conservative Home website. So let's hear from Mika about exactly what is going on in Middlesbrough's children's services and more importantly, what we should do about it. Mika, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Rob. Thank you for inviting me to be on. No no worries at all. So um, can you just summarise for our listeners what we're talking about when we describe children's services and, and just why it's placing such a burden on Middlesbrough Council? Yeah. So j- just to kind of explain who I am, really, um, I'm not from a children's services background. I'm, a, I'm elected as a councillor. I look after a ward in Middlesbrough called Nunthorpe, and I'm also executive member for Children's Services, which basic, basically means that I'm the councillor responsible for children's services. So I'm the one that has to kind of ask the difficult questions and scrutinise that service. Um, so I've been in place in that role for about a year now. And at the moment, like all councils across the country, we're setting our budget for next year. So in Middlesbrough, we've got an overall budget of about, I think I'm right in saying about 116 million this year. And Children's Services has spent 56 million pounds of that budget. Um, So we budgeted for about, I think it was about 38 million. And it's risen from that this year to, to 56 million. And I've got to say, it's no kind of, exaggeration to say the costs are just totally spiraling out of control um, that's not just an issue for for Middlesbrough Council um, and kind of you know ta- more deprived towns in the northeast um, councils like Kent and Hampshire are saying that children's services are really kind of stretching their budgets to the to the absolute mass the you know the the max and, um, you know, putting them at risk of bankruptcy, which is really astonishing to hear. So I've kind of I kind of set out what I'd learned and my views in Conservative Home the other day. So children's services, just for people yeah. who aren't sort of totally au okay with the way the council yeah. work, it is basically yeah. it's children's homes, isn't it? And foster placements and yeah. things, sort of vulnerable, vulnerable children, basically, and the care that their care. So if it, you know, at the very beginning, we call it the front door. If there's somebody in Middlesbrough that has a concern about a child, they can get in contact with the council, raise that as a concern. And, you know, that that family might be appointed a social worker. So that's kind of at the at the beginning of um, our involvement. And then that goes right to the to the other side of that, to the extreme kind of cases where there's families in crisis and a child can get taken into our care. And like you say, that can be 
um, via, you know, a connected carer, so a grandparent maybe, or an auntie and uncle that, you know, take after, look after that child, or a foster carer, or, um, you know, putting them in a, a children's home that's either run by us or run by a private firm. So, um, I know you're, you, obviously you just said that uh, this is an issue across the country, but um, yeah. I, I'm, I'm guessing that it is a bit more acute in northern towns like yeah. Middlesbrough. So now obviously it's not just children's services as well as it's adult adult social yeah. care is a huge drain on council mm -hmm. resources. And is it the case that in northern towns like Middlesbrough, which are in general perhaps a bit more deprived than mm -hmm. those in, in, in the southeast, they have greater need, yeah. uh, so more demand, but also less ability to bring in council tax revenues to yeah. pay for the services so the the problem is i guess more, more acute in places like yours and perhaps in more affluent areas yeah. in without generalizing in, in no no areas. yeah of course no yeah you, you've absolutely hit the nail on the head there you know um deprivation is one of the underlying causes of families going into crisis and children coming into care and, you know, we're, we're not just one of the most deprived, we're in some, some of our wards, we're the most deprived um, authority in the whole of the country. So we really are at the, um, you know, our demand for children's services, I think it's fair to say, is the highest in the whole of the country, or one of the highest. Oh, really? Correct. Yeah. Well, that's... That, that's a, a tricky situation. And you you wrote in your, in your column, um, what needs to happen and happen urgently is a rapid reform of the entire yeah. children's social care system before we and other authorities like us go bust, which is yeah. obviously a very serious place yeah. to be talking about going. I mean, how close is that situation for you and for councils like, like you? Yeah, well, I think it's very close. and I, I don't want to kind of unnecessarily alarm people. Um, but, you know, you, you touched on kind of Middlesbrough being a more, a more deprived area. That kind of, it follows on that we don't have the reserves that other councils have. Um, so I think we've got about 12 million pound in reserves. Um, our current um, budget for, for children, for children's services, 56 million. Um, you know, we, we don't, we literally don't have any more money that we can that we can spend on this. And if, for example, 10 more kids were to come into our care, it very, very quickly adds up and that could really start putting us at that risk, yeah? And talking about, yeah, I mean, I guess it, it can be quite small numbers of children who mm. generate a, a yeah. huge cost to the taxpayer. Yeah. And in your, in your column, you mentioned private children's homes, yeah. which are, there's, there's more and more of these to fill the gap because of increased demand. And you wrote yeah. that, uh, we're in a situation now where these providers can more or less stick their finger in the air and charge what they like. So, um, I mean, can you just give us, give us an example, just to, so yeah. people understand the kind of money that is being spent on this, yeah. like the kind of prices you're, that Middlesbrough Council is being yeah. charged to put yeah. a vulnerable yeah. child in a, in a private home. Yeah. So the, this, these are figures that every time I tell somebody about them and every time I write it down, it, it never fails to shock me. Um, so the average cost of one child for one week in one of these external residential placements at the moment is about five and a half thousand pound a week. And that's 
for one child, which I, I just I don't know how how you can ever justify that. Um, but that's the average cost. So there are some children that cost a lot more. And this isn't this is definitely not unique to us. Um, but an example is we had a quote for £33,000 for one child for one week. And I've heard from other councils across the country that can sometimes be as much as £50,000 for one child for one week. I understand and, you know, there's a lot, there's children out there with very, very complex needs. You know, sometimes these children might need, you know, four members of staff around them permanently. So you can see that that would be pricey, but I still don't think that you can justify those kind of figures. And that presumably is a lot more than it would cost to have a child in a children's home that is run by the council. Like these, 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 these private uh, operators, they, they, they were able to charge more because of the sort of demand, the supply and demand ratio in, 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 in these areas. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that kind of we touched on it before. What is kind of happening at the moment is we're talking about children where there's a crisis in, in, in the family and that child needs looking after, could have very complex needs. And there's not kind of the time to make sure that we're getting the best value for money. So that's sometimes where the cost, those kind of really exaggerated costs can come from. Yeah. And obviously with uh, vulnerable children, foster carers and social workers are a large part of the, the service that's provided to ensure their their welfare. But from your column, it, it appears that you're not just struggling to uh, recruit new foster carers and social workers, but also struggling to keep the ones that you do have. What, so what's what's going on with that? Yeah, so we've got foster carers um, that are really crucial to this, this whole picture because it means that children are, you know, in a loving home. Um, it means often that they're a lot closer to where the class is home, so in Middlesbrough or Teesside a lot of the time. Um, but at the moment, there's something called independent fostering agencies. And they're actually pay foster carers more than what we're currently paying them. Um, and that, you know, a foster carer might decide to go with an independent agency because of that increased fee. At the moment, um, it's made more tempting because of the cost of living crisis, you know, so you can clearly see why a family might choose to go with that independent agency. But what it means is, as a local authority, we're duty bound to to reimburse the independent fostering agency. So we lost a foster carer recently. Um, I think they were looking after a couple of children. We were paying them £400 a week. They've gone to an independent agency and the overall cost to us is £800 a week. And that very quickly adds up. Right, right. Now, I imagine there'll be people listening to this and say, yeah. thinking to themselves, well, a large part of this problem surely is the fact that we've had 12 years of austerity cuts to councils under a Conservative government, which have massively reduced local councils' ability, their, their spending power, basically. I mean, is, it, is that a reasonable point of view or is, it, is there more to it than just councils don't have as much money as they, as they used to? No, I, I think, I, think um, I can under, obviously understand the point, but actually the money's there 
it's just unfortunately because of the the private sector and the way things have gone um it's not being spent in in the most efficient way i don't think um i'm somebody that believes in kind of practical politics so if if we mean if we need to build more children's home in order to get best value for money and the best care for the children obviously then i think that's what we should be doing um so i think it's it's the system that needs looking at rather than just throwing more money at it because at the end of the day um so to give you an example a really obvious kind of solution to this would be to cap the costs um that perhaps local authority can but authorities can spend on external residential placements. But what actually might end up happening as a result of that is there's less um, providers and that could force the kind of the, the amount you have to pay up further. So it's, it's really tricky, um, but I don't think it's more money. It's the whole system that needs looking at. OK, so that I guess that brings us on to what we do about this situation. So if you're... Yeah. Uh, Gillian Keegan, the education secretary, or even Vishy mm -hmm. uh, Sunak, the prime minister, he's obviously his patch is not too far away in in North Yorkshire. What 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 would what should they be looking at? Sort of, I guess, in the shorter term and the longer term to try and address this this really difficult situation. So, in in the shorter term, it's kind of the stuff I talked about in my article. So that is building um, more children's homes. And, you know, helping local authorities to do that so we can bring these children both closer to home and so that they're more in our control. Um, I think that's really important. Foster carers. So some kind of national campaign um, to help us recruit more foster carers, because that's also really important. We need to be making sure that they're paid in a reasonable way and really appreciated and supported. Um, I was talking to a group the other day that had come into, um, they were called kinship carers. So that's kind of, you know, family members and, or grandparents or auntie and uncles or even friends of the family that um, offer to look after children. I think there needs to be kind of like a, a national um, agreement of how we pay those kinship carers, because there's some local authorities that don't do that. And I think that's really important. And then the other thing that's really, really driving these um, spiraling costs is agency workers. So we're losing a lot of our in-house um, social carers to agencies, and we can often end up paying double. So we need to make sure that we're, you know, really appreciating our social workers, making sure that they're paid properly, and making sure that they feel supported and that they're given the career progression they deserve so there's a lot of a lot of things that we could be doing and mm -hmm. uh, obviously the stakes couldn't be higher because it's our, our vulnerable children their future at stake and mika yeah. smiles thank you so much for for taking you through that today no problem thank you very much for having me on Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast and don't forget you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. 
it's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and it's produced by Daniel J. McCoughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. See you next week.
It's your time to take on tomorrow. So get experience, get connected, make it happen. Join Northumbria University Newcastle. Proud to have been named University of the Year in the 2022 Times Higher Education Awards. Your future starts here, so seize it. Apply now before the 25th of January. Visit northumbria.ac.uk forward slash undergraduate.